talking about pulmonary edema in pregnancy. My name is Suzanne McMurtry-Baird. I'm the nursing director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Stephanie Martin, the medical director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. Let's talk about pulmonary edema. We get lots of questions about pulmonary edema. We see it often in pregnancy, and we want to just get some information out there about what, what it is, and then how you manage it, how it's classified, how it's diagnosed, those types of things, because it is a serious issue in pregnancy and can be uh, lead to severe maternal morbidity and mortality. So let's talk just what is it, you know, what is the definition? Pulmonary edema is an abnormal accumulation of fluid outside the vascular space of the lung. It goes into the interstitial spaces. You can have buildup of fluid there. You can have buildup of fluid in the alveoli, in the cells, and that really impairs oxygen diffusion from the alveoli um, into the cells and in, into the body and decrease cardiac um, delivery of oxygenated blood uh, to the tissues throughout the body. The epidemiology, we really aren't quite sure because we have a lot of old data out there in the literature. Uh, so we're really unsure on the numbers and we really, really feel like it's underestimated as well. Uh, we do know that many of the cases that are diagnosed are during the postpartum period. And we've seen some data that, that suggests that about 70 80 to 80% of the patients are in the postpartum period. Yeah, in my experience, um, the patients that get labeled with an actual diagnosis of pulmonary edema are those who are glaringly obvious. And the more subtle cases where patients may have a milder form and you know can be managed on lower oxygen supplementation levels and recover quickly, I think they're missed often. So I totally agree that it's just clinically underestimated. And, and we do need some more recent data to help us understand the scope of this problem. But I think it's far more common than people realize. Yeah. And I often say if, you know, let's say you were presenting to the emergency department and you were not pregnant and you had chest pain, their bread and butter in the emergency department is uh, rule out myocardial, you know, infarction. To our bread and butter, if somebody comes in and says, you know, I'm having some chest pain, some tightness in my chest, and they have some clinical signs and symptoms of pulmonary compromise, I always think pulmonary edema over any other pulmonary or respiratory condition uh, is far more common than we, um, we are seeing in the data. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And, you know, we do know, and uh, from the available data and our own experience, that the majority of these cases are going to happen in the immediate and, and even delayed postpartum period. So patients can go home and develop pulmonary edema after they're discharged from the hospital, and then they're often going to end up in the emergency department. And this is just not on the radar for most uh, patients who are, you know, childbearing age that present with the emergency department with shortness of breath. So, you know, if you've got a pregnant or postpartum patient with shortness of breath, that's a pretty short list of things. And myocardial infarction is not really on it, but we're talking like pulmonary edema needs to be right at the top of the list. The other things are going to be, you know, pulmonary embolism, pneumonia, 
But one of the big mistakes that we see is that they present to the emergency department and they're labeled with new onset asthma. And the diagnosis of pulmonary edema postpartum is not really even considered because they're far more likely to see an acute asthmatic in the emergency department. So, you know, our rule of thumb is there's no such thing as a new diagnosis of asthma in a postpartum patient. You should be suspecting pulmonary edema or pulmonary embolism or something else besides asthma. And in this case, we're going to stress pulmonary edema. That's right. So let's talk about the classification of pulmonary edema. There are two types, and this is really important when you're thinking about which type of pulmonary edema, how, what is their history, what are the etiologies of each type, what do they present looking like, and that is, that's so important to think about what goes along with your physical assessment for each type. So let's just talk about those first. The first type that I want to talk about is cardiogenic, also called hydrostatic. Cardiogenic pulmonary edema is fluid volume overload. So intravascular volume is in excess and it exceeds the colloid oncotic pressure that keeps the fluid in the blood vessel. And so fluid is forced out of the vessel into the extravascular space. So that is a fluid volume overload, and those patients appear completely different than the second type of uh, pulmonary edema, which is non-cardiogenic. Yeah, and the cardiogenic patients, you know, your point about them having excess fluid in the vascular space is crucial. And that can be because you just gave them too much fluid, or the heart just couldn't handle the amount of fluid, and so it backs up and creates an overload. So that's a really, really important thing to understand um, because it's going to drive your workup and ultimately your treatment of these patients. That's so true. I mean, then they look completely different with their physical assessment, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. The second type is non-cardiogenic, also called non-hydrostatic, also called capillary leak. And this type of pulmonary edema may lead to acute respiratory distress syndrome. So that's important to know that you've got that potential if you have a diagnosis of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Stephanie, why don't you talk about the etiologies of both types? Yeah, so let's start with the non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So as Suzanne was explaining, you know, this is where Something has happened in the body system-wide throughout the capillary system that is damaging blood vessels. I like to think of it like you're roto-rootering all the blood vessels with a brush. So the endothelial lining gets damaged. It causes all the capillaries to be porous and leaky. And that's going to allow fluid to just pour out of the vascular system and into the third spaces. And in this case, the third space we're worried about is the lungs, okay? So these are going to be, you know, this is not a heart problem. The heart is working fine in this scenario. Um, This is a situation of diffuse endothelial damage that causes this leak. Now in pregnancy, the most common causes for non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema is number one preeclampsia. And I think this surprises a lot of folks because If they were to think, okay, if I were to ask why do preeclamptic 
patients develop pulmonary edema, most people are going to think that it's a volume overload problem or the high blood pressure is preventing the heart from doing its job properly. And that can absolutely happen. Um, but preeclampsia is fundamentally an endothelial problem and it creates diffuse endothelial damage, which leads to leaky capillaries. And you need to understand that because your preeclamptic patients can be intravascularly depleted or volume overloaded and having pulmonary edema does not dictate that they are volume overloaded. So that's the first thing, preeclampsia. The other common causes of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema in the pregnant patient, sepsis and infection also causes this diffuse endothelial damage that leads to leakage of fluid outside the vascular space and DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation, because that as this coagulative process happens system-wide, the clotting process then begins to break down and you have all of these fibrin split products. You might remember this from our podcast on DIC where we talk about how these Fibrin split products, I think of them like shards of glass just flying through the circulation and ripping up blood vessels. So preeclampsia, sepsis, and DIC are the top causes of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema in pregnancy. Now, if you remember back to our conversations and prior podcasts on uh, pregnancy physiology, you'll recall that pregnant women fundamentally have a decreased colloid oncotic pressure which makes it harder for them to hold fluid in the blood vessels. So then you tip them over the edge by making the blood vessels leaky, and it's like putting a hole in the bucket. It's just going to pour out. Your preeclamptic patients are also spilling tons of protein, so they have an even lower oncotic pressure and inability to hold fluid in the blood vessels. So non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, preeclampsia, sepsis, and DIC. Now, there's lots of other causes that pregnant women can develop while they're pregnant, like anaphylaxis, amniotic fluid embolism, high-altitude pulmonary edema, opioid overdose, salicylate toxicity, transfusion-related acute lung injury. There are many other causes of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, but in our population, we're talking about those three, preeclampsia, sepsis, and DIC. Now, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, the, the clue is in the name. It's because of the heart. The heart is not able to pump well, and therefore, the pump overflows, and you have excess volume in the circulation that then leaks out into the uh, lungs, not because the blood vessels are damaged, but because like Suzanne was explaining, there's just increased pressure and it overwhelms the body's ability to hold it in and it's going to be oozing out. You've, you know, think of those patients that you've seen postpartum, their, their legs are so swollen that they're literally, literally getting beads of liquid on their lower extremities. You can see it oozing across the skin. Well, that's what happens in the lungs too. Now, this overwhelming of the heart can happen to a normal heart because the patient has just been overwhelmed with volume, or she could have an abnormally functioning heart that can't handle volume. So patients with congenital heart disease or valvular lesions, you know, stenotic valves, leaky valves, if their heart is not beating in a regular rhythm, it can, they can become overwhelmed with handling volume. High blood pressure can, that's an increase in the afterload, which 
it, it essentially makes it harder for the heart to pump volume out and therefore it backs up uh, into the lungs. So decreased cardiac output in that way. You know, we know that cardiac output increases at least 40% with a singleton baby, but those increases in, uh, go up even further uh, if you have, you know, twins or triplets or even more. And then, of course, you can have patients develop new issues while pregnant, such as cardiomyopathy. Peripartum cardiomyopathy is a well-described phenomenon. You can have cardiomyopathy from other reasons as well. One of the things you need to think about that's probably more common than we realize is a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So when I say cardiomyopathy, most of us think of a floppy muscle that can't pump well, it doesn't work very well. That's your dilated cardiomyopathy and peripartum cardiomyopathy is an example of that. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the patient who's obese, diabetic, hypertensive, or all three and the heart has to, had to pump and work extra hard for a prolonged period of time. The muscle thickens, and instead of having a big dilated chamber, they've got a smaller chamber. So they may not be able to handle the normal volume of pregnancy or that bolus of fluid that you give them for the epidural or the spinal, and that can put them over the edge. Now, more rare things, you know, a myocardial infarction, core pulmonale or acute right heart failure because of pulmonary hypertension or large pulmonary emboli, um, et cetera. And we're using far less beta memetics like terbutaline for tocolytics, but um, when those are used, it certainly can overstress the heart so that it's not able to maintain cardiac output. Sorry, I remember the day, I remember the day when we would give a lot of beta memetics and you would see these patients go into pulmonary edema, um, and you anticipated it on some patients as well because of some of the other added risk factors that they might have for pulmonary edema. So I'm glad that we're not seeing that as much, but I, I just still know that uh, many providers like to prescribe that, especially in triage, Or, uh, but we're not ongoing, you know, the ongoing use is not causing the pulmonary edema as much anymore. I'll go ahead and just continue, and I hate that I interrupted you all ago, but uh, let me talk about the presentation signs and symptoms, and you know I love to talk about the vital signs, so the, the presentation and signs and symptoms for a cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic can be very similar, but I'm going to try to point out some of the differences as we talk about some of the categories of the signs and symptoms and how they might present. But the vital signs, both of these types of pulmonary edema will both have tachycardia and tachypnea, and they'll both have low pulse oximetry values. So those are going to be the same in both types of pulmonary edema, but then we need to go further and look for these variations, and that will occur in our physical exam. Uh, so for instance, if you have tachycardia and you're going to palpate the pulse, you want to make sure it's regular, and if they have any kind of evidence of irregularity in the tachycardia, but also at the quality of the pulse can tell a big difference between these two types. A cardiogenic patient and their pulse quality should be bounding when you palpate the peripheral pulses, but a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema patient, if they have low volume status, then they're going to have a weak thready pulse. Okay, so 
that could be a big difference in just not just a rate of the heart rate, but the quality of the pulse is really important. These also, your, your tachycardia and your tachypnea, kind of go up together at the same time. So you're going to watch those trends. And as the fluid builds up and as they become more hypoxic, you're going to see an even bigger changes in the in the tachypnea because that their respiratory rate will start to really, really increase as they try to blow off that CO2. And remember, because of the physiologic changes in pregnancy, these patients can go into an acidosis pretty quickly. So watching those two vital signs are very important. Of course, blood pressure is going to tell a lot as well. Uh, yeah, blood pressure, especially if they have a systolic pressure that's really high, you start thinking of higher volumes. You start thinking about hypertension in some of those cardiogenic pulmonary edema patients. But in a low volume setting, you might see more of a, a lower pressure and especially a lower systolic pressure. Another difference may be the pulse pressure, the difference of the systolic and the diastolic pressures. So if they have a really wide pulse pressure, especially over like 60 or 70 millimeters of mercury, you're thinking more of volume overload versus a more narrowed pulse pressure. You're thinking of more of a lower volume status, um, and that may be related to non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Now, both patients are going to have cough. Uh, the cough does not have to be productive. It doesn't have to be excessive in the early stages. They may start off with a very, you know, mild cough. It will be non-productive, but it will, it may be something that you may not even recognize either. It, it's like a, you know, a little irritation type cough, but then it will get more productive as the pulmonary edema uh, increases in, in the lungs. Shortness of breath, and also patients may describe that as chest tightness. You know, when they take a deep breath, their, their chest is really tight, and they may describe it even as chest pain. So that's where some of the confusion in these patients comes in, especially if they come into the ED and they say, I'm short of breath, their vital signs are abnormal, they have chest pain, and then all of a sudden they're thinking myocardial infarction, but we're thinking pulmonary edema in pregnant patients. And then certainly our abnormal ABGs, if you got an, uh, an ABG would be abnormal. And then auscultating their breath sounds, so important. We were teaching yesterday and we were talking about auscultation of breath sounds. Posterior region of the lungs, throughout all lung fields. Um, and again, posterior is so important because if you're just listening anterior, you're going to really miss the majority of the lung fields, and, and it's important. There may be some differences, too, in your physical exam um, with the cardiogenic. Cardiogenic, you're going to have more of a filling up of the lungs, um, and it's usually not right versus left. You're going to have both sides, and they'll fill from the bottom all the way up. And then as the you diuresis patients, the crackles come down. So it's important to know the location of where you're hearing crackles. It may be diffused throughout with a patient who has non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Let's talk about diagnosis now. Yeah, before we go into to diagnosis, one of the other things I wanted to comment on, Suzanne, with the, the 
physical findings, and I know this will resonate with you, anxiety. So we hear all the time and we review cases all the time where anxiety is a really prominent description that the nurses um, record. And it's not really recognized that it's a sign of hypoxemia and this patient needs to be evaluated for the possibility that she's hypoxemic and potentially in pulmonary edema. So, you know, anxiety should be a red flag. Patients don't suddenly develop anxiety disorder because they're pregnant. Now, a lot of patients have an underlying anxiety disorder, but I guarantee you, if you're hypoxemic, you're going to have some anxiety. So be a little bit more discriminating, a little bit more suspicious that it's not just a mental health concern, that this could be a symptom of something physiologic or pathophysiologic, I like pulmonary edema. Put it on your radar. Don't just request an anxiolytic for your patient. Valium is not the treatment for pulmonary edema. And we, we talk about that all the time. Now let's get into diagnosis. So before we get too deep into the diagnosis part of it, I want to highlight that this is a spectrum, okay? This disease begins slowly. The fluid accumulates and accumulates and accumulates. And the more accumulation of fluid that you get into the lung tissues, the worse the signs and symptoms will become. At first, they're going to be relatively subtle, maybe a little bit higher respiratory rate, maybe just borderline hypoxemia. Maybe they're just requiring one or two liters to keep their SATs above 95%. And, you're, and the patient can be relatively asymptomatic. That may just be just where you've got mild swelling in that tissue between the alveolus and the capillary. But as that tissue gets thicker and thicker and more and more swollen, and then fluid begins to fill the alveoli, you're going to hear more things. The patient's going to become more hypoxemic, require more oxygen, have more cough, more symptoms, et cetera. So be suspicious in those early signs. And don't think that just because they have clear lungs, they don't have pulmonary edema. They just may not have developed the crackles yet. So be suspicious and be on top of it. There's, and I, and I really want you to, if you have one take-home message from this, flash pulmonary edema is not a thing. Patients don't oh, instantaneously word. go into pulmonary edema. It develops over time. It is theoretically possible. It's exceedingly rare. It's just that we are not recognizing the progression of disease, we're ignoring abnormal physiologic parameters, abnormal vital signs until we can't ignore them anymore. And then we call it flash pulmonary edema. Do you agree, Suzanne? Yes. I, I've seen flash pulmonary edema one time and it was in a patient who had aortic stenosis. Um, certainly a left-sided lesion, cardiac, those are going to be your most common um, reasons for going into that really sudden uh, acute onset of pulmonary edema. And it's usually right after the placental delivery in the immediate postpartum period that I've seen it. And not any other time, because usually we'll see like a deterioration of their vital signs that have been um, normalized uh, or a, a sign and symptom, like you said, of anxiety that that is in combination with some abnormal vital signs. And then all of a sudden we have a patient that is now with severe hypoxemia and tissue hypoxia that we start to see 
even if they're pregnant, you start seeing some changes in the fetal tracing, certainly. But um, yeah, flash pulmonary edema is just exceedingly rare. Yeah, I've seen it once as well. And it was in a patient who had undiagnosed mitral stenosis in pregnancy, and it became diagnosed when she was given a shot of terbutaline to treat preterm contractions. And that put her over the edge and she developed pulmonary edema rather rapidly. So um, the other scenario where I've seen it is amniotic fluid embolism, but that's a completely different scenario that we've talked about separately in other podcasts. So how are you gonna diagnose this? You know, It's not complicated. First, you have to suspect it. Um, but you're going to be looking at vital signs. You're going to do your physical assessment like we just uh, talked about. And really the first and probably the most common way to evaluate it is a chest x-ray. Just do a chest x-ray. The fact that the patient's pregnant should not stop you from doing a chest x-ray. And, you know, remember, though, that the chest x-ray is not going to be abnormal until you have a certain amount of, you know, saturation of the lungs with fluid. So you have to be suspicious and don't assume that a normal chest x-ray doesn't mean that in a few hours it won't be abnormal and show the pulmonary edema. Um, labs are important. Yeah, Suzanne. Yeah, especially in the non-cardiogenic picture. Uh, so the non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema is going to show up later on the chest x-ray. So those patients are going to be severe, um, have severe hypoxia and their chest x-ray immediately may look pretty, uh, you know, normal. And then 12 to 24 hours later, the chest x-ray will change and you'll see some severe changes in the chest x-ray versus a cardiogenic patient. Their chest x-ray changes much quicker than uh, non-cardiogenic. Um, and they actually have possibly, depending on how quickly you, you assess it and diagnose it, they may have less hypoxemia, but their chest x-ray can look pretty bad um, at the time. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, and the chest x-rays can look different between the two as well. So for cardiogenic pulmonary edema, like Suzanne described, you know, the lungs are going to fill from the bottom up. Think of it, it's overflowing like a sink overflowing. Um, so the lungs are going to fill from the bottom up. With cardio, with uh, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, it's much more diffuse um, bilateral up in the apices a little bit more that compared to the cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Now, lab testing, um, ABG is, is very useful in many patients. You can be looking for um, the, what we call the PF ratio, which is the ratio of your PO2 that you get from the ABG compared to the amount of oxygen that is being delivered to the patient. And what you're looking for is how well is the oxygen that you're putting in getting through into the bloodstream? And I'm not going to go into great detail here on that, but that's an important piece of information um, that, that your ABG can tell you. Another very helpful tool, if you are trying to determine if your patient has cardiogenic pulmonary edema, is B-type natriuretic peptide, or BNP. You can still rely on the same thresholds that you would rely on were the patient not pregnant, and essentially a value over 100 should make you suspect a cardiac etiology. So this is particularly important in places that don't have immediate access to the definitive test for cardiogenic versus non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and that's an echocardiogram. So ultimately, looking at the heart is going to tell you whether the heart is functioning the way that it should. But if you don't know if you should get an echo or you don't have immediate access to an echo, 
the BNP can be a very useful tool to understand if this could be cardiogenic. Now, remember, a negative test, a negative BMP, a normal BMP, less than 100, does not mean your patient doesn't have pulmonary edema. It means the cardiac ventricles are not overdistended and overstretched. So it's not cardiac in origin. So that's just another piece of information that you can take into account there. Now, let's talk about management. You've made the diagnosis of pulmonary edema. So I want you to start thinking differently. It's not pulmonary edema. It's cardiogenic or non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And then you're going to focus on your management approach based on what you've decided the type of pulmonary edema that you're dealing with. That's true. And the first thing you need to also think about is the underlying cause, like what caused this? And, uh, and that's really beyond the scope of this lecture, but that plays into how you're managing the patient, right? So you have a patient who has preeclampsia, she has signs and symptoms of low intravascular volume, she could have low cardiac output because of the low stroke volume. And then you've got this patient who has leaky vessels you get an echocardiogram, you, you see that the heart is functioning correctly, so you suspect that she has a leaky vessel, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and that management is maybe completely different than what you're thinking about for a cardiogenic patient. So I think that it, it, it really spills over to how you plan your care as to the type. So and that is also identified by the cause. So step one, identify the cause. Because the rest is about supportive care. And that we start very simply with things like, what position do I want to put the patient in? Because I will position a patient who has cardiogenic fluid volume overload. I'm going to sit her up. And I'm going to sit that patient up in the bed and and versus a patient who has a non-cardiogenic, I'm going to be doing things to make her cardiac output be enhanced. And that may even be lying the patient down and turning them on their left or right side versus a sitting the patient up. Same thing with management of IV fluids. If I have a patient that I feel that is in cardiogenic pulmonary edema, obviously one of the first things we want to do is turn down the amount of volume that we're giving that patient and to make sure that we're not giving her more than we need to versus a patient who has non-cardiogenic and we may feel like her volume, intravascular volume is low. So she may even require volume in anticipation of this uh, even worsening pulmonary edema. And that would only be done to, to enhance her cardiac output if she has a really low cardiac output. The other thing that we want to do is continuously monitor her vital signs, her pulse oximeter. We're going to want to put her on an ECG monitor, make sure that she doesn't have any um, cardiac hypoxia causing arrhythmias. And then if she's still pregnant, certainly a continuous EFM. And remember that fetus is, a, is like a little pulse oximeter in the uterus. They start telling you signs and symptoms of maternal hypoxia with rising baseline, decreasing baseline variability, and late decelerations. And again, that would be from the mom to the baby. So 
you're going to start seeing those changes if the patient's still pregnant. Medications, well that again, it's going to be dependent upon what type of pulmonary edema that you feel that the patient has. And again, in relationship to the intravascular volume status that the patient has. I think that uh, Lasix plays a huge role um, in our cardiogenic pulmonary edema patients. And, and they're they reverse pretty quickly because again, you can give those patients some, you know, Lasix and and pull a lot of that fluid off pretty quickly. Uh, but again, the giving a Lasix, like giving Lasix to a patient that you feel like is intravascularly volume depleted, can also drop those patients' cardiac output even more. And I know you wanted to comment on that, Stephanie, a little bit more because. We see, and we get asked that question a lot, and it's just, it's just usually like, give them some Lasix, give them some Lasix, and it's really based upon their intravascular volume that you feel like the patient has. Yeah, I think the piece that is missing when obstetric providers are caring for these patients is that we think all pulmonary edema equals just give them Lasix and everything will be okay. And we have to understand that there's a lot of patients that have non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and they might benefit from, you know, a diuretic to help them get rid of volume. But if you don't understand the possibility that they could be intravascularly depleted, well, you're going to worsen their cardiac output. You're going to drop their blood pressure. You're going to decrease perfusion to vital organs, such as the kidneys. And remember, these are patients who already have some underlying issue. They might've had you know, massive hemorrhage and massive transfusion. They might be septic or in septic shock. And just giving a diuretic, while you might be temporarily helping the lungs, you could be worsening everything else. So it takes more, you know, real critical thinking to than just saying you need to just give a diuretic because they have pulmonary edema. So I don't want you to take away that, diuresis is wrong for non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. I want you to hear that you need to critically think about the role of diuresis in a, and is my patient intravascularly depleted or not. And if you're going to give a diuretic, start low, go slow. For the most part, your patients have decent renal function. They're going to respond to 10 milligrams. You don't need to give them 40 milligrams of Lasix. They, you start low, go slow. You can give them more based on their response. But if they're intravascularly volume depleted, you give them 40 and they pee out seven liters, you can be in a real, a real hole that you're going to be digging yourself out of. Yeah, that's so true. And get, remember that most of our patients are healthy before they become pregnant. And if they develop a symptom, you know, a disease like preeclampsia, they're still healthy uh, patients. They have a disease of pregnancy. Same thing with like sepsis. They may have come into the pregnancy completely healthy, but like, like Stephanie said, they have normal renal function. We go in with a large dose of Lasix and or multiple doses, then you're going to start having to replace potassium. You're going to start having to do other measures. You may even have to start giving them more fluid um, that may exacerbate the problem. I'm going to give another example of a medication that um, that fixes the problem of pulmonary edema versus just fixing the volume. And, and the example I want to give is some, uh, a patient who has 
high systemic vascular resistance. So they're very hypertensive. And with a high systemic vascular resistance, a high mean arterial pressure, volume's going to back up. And it's going to back up into the pulmonary vasculature. Fixing the problem of a cardiogenic cause such as high blood pressure is not going to help if you just give them a, a, a dose of a diuretic. Fixing the problem means lowering that systemic vascular resistance, allowing the volume to come out. You may still need to give a dose of diuretic, but fixing the problem may help the situation and you don't have to result in a diuretic. Yeah, and to take that a step further, the patient that I described earlier that had mitral stenosis and went into pulmonary edema when she was given terbutaline, yes, a diuretic may be necessary in this patient, but you cannot fix the problem unless you also control her heart rate. So controlling her heart rate is a key part of addressing why she developed pulmonary edema in the first place. It's not just a diuretic. So understanding the cause is really, really important. Now, the other medication that I wanted to talk about was magnesium sulfate. So ah. one of the most common reasons why our patients develop pulmonary edema is because they have underlying preeclampsia. If you have pulmonary edema, by definition, you have preeclampsia with severe features and you are a candidate for magnesium sulfate for seizure prophylaxis. There is this widespread belief that magnesium is contraindicated in patients with pulmonary edema and that it can even cause pulmonary edema. When in fact, the literature just doesn't support that. Now, I do believe we need more data on this, but there's no data to support that magnesium causes pulmonary edema. So if you have a patient with preeclampsia who develops pulmonary edema, continue the magnesium. It does not change the management. Now, it is very important because very often these patients, not only are they on magnesium, they may be on oxytocin, they may be on antibiotics, who knows? So excruciating care to minimize fluids, particularly IV fluids, to the lowest possible infusion rate is critical. So it's far more likely to be the volume that we infuse with the magnesium and everything else that we're giving these patients because they're critically ill than it is the inherently the magnesium itself. So take home message, don't stop magnesium because your patients are on uh, are preeclamptic with pulmonary edema. Just do meticulous INO and limit your intake to the bare minimum. You're right, because what it is is trying to find that balance of what is the fluid volume that this patient needs to optimize their cardiac output without pushing them over into pulmonary edema. And that goes into labor management as well, uh, how much you're going to bolus for uh, fetal heart rate tracings, how much you're going to bolus prior to the epidural. And it certainly doesn't mean that they can't have an epidural or, or that they don't need to have a bolus before or even after. That is individualized by each patient. And they need to be, um, again, doing your non-invasive assessments and looking at and knowing the type of what the cause is, because if we just use the example of preeclamptic patient, they can have a cardiogenic pulmonary edema, 
strictly from increased systemic vascular resistance, but they can also have a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema from the capillary leak that they have. So it is a, those patients are really sick and, and, and that really needs to be, be discussed. One more point about that as far as medications. We do not want to be inducing patients who have a pulmonary edema and caused by preeclampsia until they're stabilized. Because of the increased needs of cardiac output during labor, we want to make sure that we're not having these excessive uh, uterine activity uh, contractions every one to two minutes on top of having a uh, low pulse ox value or, or maternal compromise at the time because it will use so much more oxygen up during for these patients. So the key point is to stabilize the patient before you either restart the Pitocin or initiate the Pitocin uh, for labor management. I wanted to just kind of clarify that. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, stabilization doesn't take that long. Um, so people are probably hearing and going, but wait a minute, we got to treat it. They've got preeclampsia. We'll never fix it until we deliver her. She needs to be delivered, but she also needs to be stabilized first. Because if you start running into uh, fetal heart rate abnormalities that become concerning because you've got a patient who's hypoxemic and not stable, then what we see all too often is now we're running back to the operating room to do major abdominal surgery, potentially under general anesthesia on a critically ill patient who we haven't taken the time to stabilize. So you know, don't panic, figure out what's going on, stabilize the patient, and then proceed with getting them delivered by whatever the safest route possible is. And, uh, and then, so lastly, um, let's talk about oxygenation, Suzanne. Okay, let's do it. The, um, we don't, we want to start oxygen, obviously, on these patients who have hypoxemia and hypoxia. Um, and we want to give the lowest amount possible. So, Normally what we see is starting with nasal cannula and then a non-rebreather face mask. You know, there are other ways of administering oxygen and there's more advanced, certainly in a critically ill patients, those are the ones that we need to consider. So especially some of our uh, newer technology um, aspects that we uh, learned more about in pregnancy during COVID, um, some of the higher flow oxygen um, therapies. Um, CPAP can be given also in these patients, um, and that, that has multiple modalities of uh, improving, not just recruiting new alveoli, but oxygenating the alveoli and, and improving oxygenation. Um, but then lastly, we want to anticipate uh, mechanical ventilation need, especially if you've tried you know, your nasal cannula, you've advanced to a non-rebreather face mask, and you're starting to see that that is not adequately controlling uh, oxygenation and enhancing oxygenation, you're going to anticipate the, the role of ventilation, uh, especially in your non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema patients. Um, and that that is key, because not anticipating may lead to a patient having respiratory uh, arrest prior to intubation um, in a patient that should have been intubated uh, previously. So look for those needs and anticipate that need as well. And then lastly, we want to decrease oxygen consumption. Um, one way to do that is to manage the patient's pain. 
and manage uh, their oxygenation uh, because anxiety, um, movement, uterine contractions, pain, all of those types of things increase the oxygen consumption in a patient that has really low reserve. And so they will start dropping their pulse oximetry values and their uh, oxygen availability if the oxygen consumption goes way high. So we call that an oxygen delivery dependent state. Anything else you want to add, uh, Stephanie? No, I hope that this has been helpful for people to kind of just get a broad overview, you know, of pulmonary edema, how to know the difference between cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema and why it even matters. So we look forward to your feedback and want to thank everybody for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. Follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on X at OB Critical Care, and Instagram at Critical Care OB. And feel free to email us or send a direct message for any suggestions on future podcasts. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.